0: Hello and welcome to 20 to 1, a brand new podcast that explores the lives of accomplished individuals with me, Josiah Senu, your host. In each episode, I aim to uncover the tips, tricks, and insights that have made my guests pioneers in their field, all in 20 questions. So now it's time to welcome Margarita Cornalia. Margarita is a barrister of Doughty Street Chambers through practices in employment and public law. She spent time at the International Criminal Court and UNICEF and as a judicial assistant at the Supreme Court. Margarita has also co-founded Themis, the Intersectional Women's Barristers Alliance, and is currently working as a legal coordinator at Climate Champions. Margarita, you're an impressive woman, so it's really, a truly a pleasure to be here with you talking. Thank you so much for joining the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Awesome. And I've also got with me my new co-host, Elice Noga. So straight into it, Margarita. I've been speaking to quite a few people of late, and I guess something that's come to my mind is what high performance means and how it's lived on a day-to-day. For you, what does high performance mean?
1: I always think of a Latin saying when I think of high performance, and that's mens sana in corpore sano. And to me, that expresses the importance of a balanced life. I don't think high performance is possible without having a balanced life. And I think it's important to have time to care about our personal interests, our hobbies, our families, our relationships, while having time to commit to our jobs and do our best And to me, without having one, there isn't really the other. And if I don't have time for myself, I'm unable to perform highly. And I think there's a distinction between spending many, many hours at work and spending quality hours at work. And I always try to prioritise the latter over the former.
0: You talk about balance being super important. So how do you go about maintaining balance within a profession that's quite high pressured?
1: One important thing I think that every junior struggles with is learning how to manage your calendar and to say no when you're overwhelmed and under pressure and when you know that saying yes will just get you to do a bad job. So I think that's certainly one important thing, having a very honest, open relationship with your clerks, with your colleagues and making sure that they're aware of where you are and what you're doing and what your time commitments are. So I have incredibly supportive clerks, Sam, Callum and Freddie, and they take time to make sure that they know where I am and how much capacity I have every week. And that's very helpful for me, particularly when I'm juggling two different jobs almost. So my traditional practice in employment and my work with the climate champions as legal coordinator there. So I think certainly having an open relationship with clerks and colleagues is important. I try to stick to my identity in my culture. I love cooking, so I take time to cook when I can do so. I love sports. I love being outdoors and really sort of being out in nature to me helps me refresh and take a step back and get that perspective over my life that sometimes one risks losing.
0: So it sounds like you spend a lot of time outside of the court to make sure that you're the best you can be in court. And I suppose when you're in court, what does it mean for you to be an excellent advocate?
1: When you're in court, the pressure is obviously quite high. I think the main thing that one needs to be a good advocate is really being passionate about what you do. So choosing a job and choosing an area of law that you believe in and that you think is well suited to your personality. So for me, that was very much starting with discrimination in the employment tribunals. And discrimination is is a very tough area of law, but knowing that you're representing a client for a reason gives you the motivation to really do your best for them. And I can't emphasize enough the importance of preparation for court. Nobody's a good advocate just rocking up and winging it. It takes time to prepare. Sam, one of my clerks, gave me a rule of thumb, which is if there's a five-day hearing, you probably need just as many days to prep. And I think that's a really, really important advice that I would certainly give to any other junior barrister
2: or aspiring barrister. Preparation is certainly central in advocacy. It'd be interesting to uh, zoom out and think about how you even got here in the first place. So did you attend secondary school in the UK? And if not, what brought you to the UK for your undergraduate studies?
1: No, I didn't attend secondary school in the UK. I was in Italy. And at the time of deciding what to do with my life when I was 16, which is, or 17, it seems incredibly young. I find, thinking back, I find it. Astonishing that so many young people have to decide what to do with their lives, or it almost feels like that, right, at such an early age. And to me, I mean, I always had an idealized view of of the United Kingdom and of Cambridge and Oxford, I guess, because there's some of the most well-known and and academic institutions. And I've I've always been a bit of a nerd, so I always I I was always (laughs) (laughs) aiming to the stars, and um, and I really only applied to, I think. Cambridge and perhaps LSE because I, I really, and I was really undecided between the two because I think LSE is such an incredible institution and so connected to what's going on, to political trends, social trends. But ultimately I applied and, and got in and and decided to study law here. I chose law very randomly. I just thought it would open as many doors as possible and would allow me to go down a sort of traditional route at the bar or as a solicitor, but also to do something
2: different. So that's why I chose law and decided to come here. Would you say that the UK and I guess Cambridge specifically have lived up to your high expectations? (laughs) Certainly in some parts. I mean, I really cherished my
1: education um, at Cambridge. I had incredible colleagues, peers, and I still I'm still great friends with them now and really sort of people coming from all over the place, which was great. I remember the, my two closest friends, one, one of them is German and the other is English. And we always laugh about it because they took me out to my first Chinese dinner <laughs> and my <laughs> first sushi dinner. Because initially I never went for sushi or for Chinese. So like it was just <laughs> full of so many new things. And it was just such an exciting time of my life. So I, I definitely cherish that. There's obviously things that have let me down, I guess. Finding it sometimes difficult to fit in or feeling a bit as an an imposter, worrying about my accent and about my Italianisms and just being concerned that I'll drop an Italian word in a sentence is always quite difficult. And I obviously miss Italy very, very much. But unfortunately, the employment conditions there aren't as good as here. And so even even in that, I, I think that the job market in the UK is so much more merit-based than what I'm used to back home. And that's also something I incredibly value of this country.
2: As an Italian, I must say, I, I share many of the same views. I guess you've attended another really impressive university besides Cambridge, which is EUI, the European University Institute. Could you tell us a bit about your experiences there? Did you like it? How was it in comparison to your experience here in the UK?
1: Absolutely. Again, such an incredible place, very different, very, very different, but really interesting. I I went to EUI for research LLM right after the BPTC and in part, It was because I had a a year to fill between the BPTC and pupillage. I wasn't earning at the time, so I I wish I could have just gone and travelled for a year, but that wasn't going to happen. So I decided to just apply for a master's there because one of my professors from Cambridge, who taught EU law, had warmly recommended the place and I thought it would be interesting to see how it was to get an education in Europe as opposed to to in the UK to sort of see the differences between the civil system of legal education and the common law system of legal education. And it was very interesting to compare the two. So I was supervised by a German professor, and certainly the way he supervised my thesis was very different to how my dissertation had been supervised here. There's just different ways of, of writing and of thinking, and perhaps I'm not sure this is a true observation, but an impression. I have is that certainly as an Italian, we tend to get Involved in these very sort of deep philosophical uh, discussions and debates. And we write these very long sentences and, and tend to be very sort of articulate and, and complex and detailed. And, and sometimes I felt that the approach in the UK was very much more succinct and straightforward and convey a point. And I don't think either one is better than the other, but I think it's
2: certainly interesting to have both experiences of academia. How would you say that these two institutions, or perhaps the combination of the two, have influenced your approach to law and life more generally? That's a very good question.
1: Well, so I certainly think that studying here in the UK after sort of growing up in Italy and like with an entirely Italian family really taught me to sort of convey my ideas more directly than I would have when I was back in Italy. Even comparing sort of my writing, it's just really interesting to see how it's changed. And I think that's that's such an important skill to have as an advocate, being able to sort of convey thoughts with simplicity and concisely. And I certainly think that studying in the UK has helped me do that. And on the other hand, I think at the EUI, what I learned is that it's important also not to ever lose sight of the complexity of whatever you're looking at. So it's important to be able to think about things simply and to communicate things simply while being knowledgeable about the underlying complexity of concepts and and legal developments and arguments in cases and so on and so forth.
0: It feels like your experiences have really been influenced a lot by your Italian heritage, the European university you attended, where you are today. How open would you say the bar is to people who maybe not come from the UK and come from Europe, for example, or overseas?
1: That's a very good question, in part because I'm just thinking about <laughs> the people I know at the bar and I'm just trying to think about how many are not from the UK and I'm, I'm struggling at this moment. I mean, there's obviously a few, but there's not not that many, I think. And I think we all know that the bar certainly has some problems when it comes to access and, and progressing through the bar that are tied to backgrounds and nationalities and gender and probably every protected <laughs> characteristic. Um, I certainly can't say that I've felt less privileged. I mean, I think mine is not a case of someone who's had a really sort of tough time accessing and entering the bar and getting to the bar because I've always had an education. I've always had a family that really valued learning. And I think that's why I can't say that I myself have had difficulties at the bar, but I think there certainly are some very real difficulties tied to social backgrounds um, and other other characteristics and I, I certainly feel that there's lots of aspiring barristers and students who are intimidated by knowing that the bar has these problems and I just, I sometimes don't know what to say? I think there's lots of people at the bar who are well-meaning and trying to fight these problems. And I think that no one should be discouraged from trying because of this perception that the bar is not accessible because it's important that whoever might be put off from trying the bar isn't because that's the only way in which we can get this institution to change and develop and keep up with the times.
0: Yeah, I really know your passion to trying to help the situation and your entrepreneurial spirit is really embodied in in you co-founding Themis the in the intersectional women's barrister alliance. Now, what is that work? the work that you do there and 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 how can people help?
1: Themis was an idea that I had During the year just before lockdown, so 2019, 2020, I was at the Supreme Court at the time and another judicial assistant, Ilsa McKeon, and I were very interested in working on the issue of women's representation at the bar. And there's big problems when it comes to gender. There's a big gender pay gap at the bar, in part because it's it's not a traditional sort of regulated industry. So with having everyone uh, being sort of self-employed practitioners, when you start looking at the statistics that are published on practice areas and income, it's quite frightening to see the difference between men and women. And ethnic minorities, particularly women who are also members of a particular ethnic minority are particularly disadvantaged. And so we were thinking about all these things and and feeling very sort of frustrated about not having a space to try to do something about it. And we tried to initially engage with the Association of Women Barristers, which was an an organization that did exist because we thought we don't want to reinvent the wheel. We want to just sort of be part of an organization that works on gender issues at the bar. And our idea was perhaps to set up a small junior subcommittee at the AWB and to try to mobilize younger lawyers, uh, younger women, to start thinking about these things and and really sort of campaign about them and, and raise the profile of these issues among the legal profession unfortunately we realized that the awb was not really functioning so we decided to just set something up ourselves and and at that point luna spada who's now a pupil barrister joined us and the three of us tried to put something together and it's it was a really really interesting experience there was so much interest particularly obviously from sort of aspiring barristers women aspiring barristers who really i think Benefit from having a space where they can join other women and speak about their concerns and attend sort of learning sessions, find mentors. I think it's sort of very important to try to facilitate those routes of access into the bar. But we were also focusing on issues like maternity and what that means. And recently, another issue that's sort of less in the spotlight is menopause. But menopause tends to be the time at which women reach the height of their careers and it can last a long time and it can be very sort of debilitating and challenging for women in work. The idea behind Themis was creating a space to start speaking about these issues more and to start reaching out to not just aspiring barristers but women who were progressing within the bar and looking at what obstacles they were facing. Now I step back slightly uh, from Themis so I, I need to really give All praise to the women who are currently running it now and are doing an incredible job. I stepped back primarily because I got increasingly involved in climate-related work, but big, big applause from me for the women who are currently running FEMIS and keeping it going because I think it's such such an important initiative to have at the bar.
0: Absolutely. And that work to increase the intersectional gender representation and to improve issue, women's issues at the bar is, is really important. And I suppose during this, this moment where you're figuring out whether or not the bar is a place for you or it's a place where you would flourish, would you say that you ever had moments of imposter syndrome?
1: Literally every day. <laughs> There's always someone who's better than you. There's always something that makes you feel why how how did I get here I think and I catch myself thinking like that. And I think it doesn't help me and it doesn't help anyone who has imposter syndrome to think that you don't belong where you are. One thing I remember is my director of studies back in Cambridge, the first thing she told us, and she was the very young woman who'd been very successful in her academic career from Greece, so also not from the UK, probably had quite a bit of imposter syndrome herself. And so the first thing she told us, which I thought was so important, sometimes just hearing it said, was, you deserve to be here. We didn't make a mistake. We chose you to be here and don't ever think differently. But I think it's just so difficult. You're all, all, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but um, I think it's just so easy to slip into that thought process of being, of just seeing people around you who are very talented and then questioning whether you're talented enough to be part of that club. So yes, it does happen to me a lot. Um, and I try to Fight against it, I guess, but um, I think it's also normal sometimes to feel that way, and and you just need to let yourself feel and accept that that's going to happen, but that it's also not necessarily true. That it's a matter of perception.
0: How would you say your time with Lord Kerr influenced you?
1: Working with Lord Kerr was the most incredible, unique experience I've had professionally. Was an incredible experience personally. Lurke was one of the most amazing men I've ever met. He was intelligent and kind and empathetic and funny. He loved having a good time and I just learned so much from him. And incredibly, I mean, after the career that he had, the stress and difficulty of that career in Northern Ireland, but he never lost sight of the importance. It goes back to what I was saying at the start. He never lost sight of the importance of his family, of his wife, of his children, of his grandchildren. And I remember sort of I was I was going through a bit of a difficult time at the start of my time with him because my grandfather was unwell and passed away. And I'd always been very close to my grandpa. And so I remember going into Lord office and just telling him, I I just sometimes I asked myself. What's the point of, of all of this? Like, if you just lose people. And um, and I remember he said, it's just because you haven't had kids yet. You'll realize because he loved his children <laughs> and his grandchildren so much. And he was that person who's jovial, always smiling, doing an incredible job. And like the conversations I've had with him were, I'm never going to have that again. I mean, it's not something you can replicate. But also just such a fatherly figure and so kind and supportive and and certainly that gave me confidence because he was very human and didn't hide the fact that he was very human to me and, and then you feel more comfortable about being human yourself and having difficult moments and struggling with work but continuing nonetheless and I think that resilience, that strength is something
0: that Lord Kerr really, really gave me. What's the most memorable moment you've had with Lord Kerr?
1: Probably it was actually when my, my mum and my dad came to visit and. My mum kind of speaks English. I mean, she invents words along the way, but, <laughs> um, but she's very, she's not afraid of trying at least. So she, she can be quite talkative. My dad um, has this feeling that he just can't speak English. So he tries not to utter a word because he's very concerned about making mistakes. And I told Lutke that that my parents were visiting and he insisted to have them up in his office in the Supreme Court, opened a bottle of champagne. We sat there and he got both of them to speak to him in English without feeling uncomfortable and we had this really interesting conversation about the balance between religious freedom so the right to religious freedom and other rights and it's just such a memorable
0: moment wow that that must have been an incredible moment and getting your mum and dad as well to converse in English what a feat Lorca has no no limitations (laughs) exactly
2: (laughs) the champagne must have helped (laughs) (laughs) You've spoken about all the challenges related to to the bar and access to the bar. So I wonder how you kind of gained that courage to dream in that in the first place and become determined to become a barrister in the first place. Oh, that's a very good question.
1: I've always been very sort of stubborn and determined. So when I get something in my head, I just try. And it's also the case that I think I took a flying to the bar with, with a pinch of salt, I guess. Like I knew it was very challenging. I mean, I remember Lincoln's Inn with, with its usual touch (laughs) 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 at one of the sort of first sessions for aspiring barristers, which I went to some guy who'd come to speak about being a barrister. And I think he was at the Chancery bar or something like that, got us all to stand up and then sort of said, all right, now, and he assigned numbers to everyone standing in this big hall. And so he said, numbers one to whatever, sit down. And he's like, these are the people who are not going to get to bar school or whatever. And then he was like, numbers X to Y, sit down. These are all the people who won't even get to pupillage. And then another chunk, he was like, these are the people who are not going to even end up getting tenancy. And there was like five people left standing up in the room or something like that. So I was, I was always very aware of the challenge. I think everyone in the UK is very good about making sure that all aspiring barristers are terrified by the prospect of how competitive (laughs) and amazing it is. And it's sort of the best job you'll ever get, but it's so difficult that only a few can get it. I don't like that discourse very much I don't like sort of putting people off trying and I think there's lots of challenges in life and the bar is just one of them it's not nothing more special than anything else and there's also lots of other professions that are competitive and I've just I haven't seen the same behavior of just trying to put off people of lying that I've seen at the bar in other areas so I think it's it's always important to always sort of take things with a pinch of salt, like just knowing that they're portrayed in a certain way by certain people and being able to sort of understand that that's a perspective again, and that you're always entitled to try and go for it and do your best. And that that's all you can do your best. I mean, I always tell myself, all I can do is do my best and then things will go as they go. And I think trying to have that more relaxed approach made trying to access the bar a bit less daunting and less terrifying. And I would urge everyone who's trying to get to the bar to take that approach and and not be scared or put off. Think about who you are. Think about what you want to do. Think about just giving your everything and doing your best. And that's
2: that's all you need to think about. All the rest is background noise. In times of kind of picking out the sort of chambers that might be suited for someone. What set Doughty apart for you? And what do you think are considerations that aspiring barristers should take into account when they're thinking about where they see themselves?
1: Well, so Doughty Street is a special place. And I noticed that when I was applying for pupillage because I'd come in and, and come to listen to a few of their events. I remember in particular, an event on, on media freedom. And, and Doughty Street does some incredible work defending journalists internationally. They represent Maria Ressa, for instance, but they've really sort of, the, the media panel at Doughty Street does some incredible work making sure that the rights of journalists globally are, are defended. And to me, it, it was that liberal set, that progressive mindset and that activist mindset as well that attracted me to Doughty Street and because I've I've always been passionate about human rights and social justice and Doughty Street is really sort of the embodiment of those principles and I've certainly experienced that since being here. And what do you do when you choose chambers? I think you You look around, you try to sort of speak to people if you have the chance to do so, even just, I mean, sometimes it's about writing a message on LinkedIn or on Twitter and sort of just saying, "I, I had a couple of questions about your set. And I think trying to find out as much information as possible when you're applying to then make an informed decision of where you think you might be most well suited is important. And to me, yeah, Doughty Street resonated with a lot of what I believed in. So that's why I chose Doughty Street.
2: Seeing as we're on the topic of Doughty Street, what specifically would you say is work experience that might stand an applicant in good stead?
1: I'm not sure about other sets of chambers because obviously sort of different sets of chambers have different requirements. Certainly one thing that Doughty Street emphasises a lot is sort of commitment to civil liberties and human rights. So a lot of what Doughty Street applicants usually have is something that exhibits that commitment. So whether it is volunteering at a law centre regularly or really sort of anything working in areas that show your commitment. So it it can be from academic experiences to non-academic experiences. But I think it's that that idea of of commitment that's really important. And it's not about sort of just showing that you've gone off and and, and spent two weeks in a i don't know some a school in in africa teaching or in southeast asia that's not really what demonstrates long term commitment so i think it's just showing that you've done things consistently and why why is that important because that says something about your personality going off for 2 weeks somewhere doesn't say as much probably i mean it, it can obviously i'm not i don't want to exclude that as something that can be good. It really depends on your personal circumstances, but but I think you need to be sort of honest with yourself. And if you're applying to a place like Doughty Street, you probably do want to have some sort of commitment to civil liberties or human rights. And I mean, I don't know, you you you're you're also a, a soon-to-be pupil, so uh, probably you had to align yourself to that set's character as well in some way or another, and, and demonstrate characteristics that they would be looking for. I think
0: right. No, absolutely. It's constantly a case of trying to make sure that when you're applying for pupillage that you present yourself in the best possible form, your best self and certain chambers like particular characteristics more than others. And you have to manage that a lot. So I I completely agree with you that you're constantly trying to find what are you passionate about? What is chambers passionate about and dovetailing both of them?
1: Yeah. And I think that's kind of because at least the way I feel it is obviously chambers chooses you, but you also choose chambers. So there has to be some sort of identity between the place you're joining and, and who you are. So yeah.
0: It's peculiar because most people often say that sort of the chambers they end up at were the chambers that they were always meant to end up at. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, yeah. <laughs> funny how that happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Um, Things tend to, I guess, fall in place.
2: Yeah. So you've emphasised the importance of kind of extensive human rights experience. But I would say that lots of aspiring human rights barristers face a bit of a dilemma sometimes between gaining experience that's relevant and human rightsy, but at the same time getting paid slash also developing their legal skills. So do you agree that this dilemma exists? And if yes, do you have any advice on how to strike the right balance between these two things?
1: Yeah, I certainly agree that it exists. And I think it's very problematic that someone who's, who's aspiring to enter sort of the, the human rights field is often expected to have done unpaid internships or to just sort of sacrifice quite a bit to try to get experience that will then get you the job. I certainly think that's problematic. There's ways to get around it. I did a lot of tutoring, which is certainly not something I liked or wanted to do. But it paid and it helped me make some money while i was doing stuff that didn't pay i also think that it's important to stress that i'm sure that a place like Doughty street is very well aware of this dilemma and they'll listen to an applicant that says this is what i've done because i needed to earn to live and to pay for my studies and to pay for my flat and like and they'll be receptive to the difficulties that these people might have in having that ability to experience human rights areas in an unpaid world, while also just taking care of themselves and um, putting food on the table and so on and so forth. So, And I'm sure that it's not just Doughty Street. I think that chambers generally are aware of it. And so no one should be frightened to sort of express that in an application, in an interview. Um, It's entirely legitimate to raise that. And again, I also think that there are things that can be done for free without impacting your life excessively. So as I was saying earlier, like legal advice centers, volunteering once a week, one evening a week or something like that is more doable than, than doing a six month unpaid internship. And as I understand it, at least Doughty Street would give no more or no, le- no less weight to volunteering one evening a week. While having a job part time or whatever than to doing a six month unpaid internship, they value both. There's no reason to value one above the other. So don't feel like you need to commit a huge amount of time to unpaid experiences. But unfortunately, it is the case that they are still valuable and they do teach you quite a lot. It is true. Like you do, you do gain something from them, but it is, it's difficult and it's tiring. And if you need to do a job on the side, it can be quite overwhelming. So just stay strong, I guess, and keep at it. But um, don't think that you need to be doing huge amounts of unpaid work. That's not the case. And nobody should feel that it is and and put themselves in that position.
0: Margarita, it's been such a, a great conversation and I've learned so much. But before we go, do you have any final thoughts, words of advice for those who wish to be just like you?
1: Aw, don't wish to be just like me. Wish to be just like you. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: I just think I would emphasize again the importance of being faithful to yourself, sticking to who you are, cherishing who you are and building on who you are as opposed to trying to be something different just to access a profession. I think you'll be stronger if you're yourself. And again, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of maintaining a balance and not allowing things to blind you and overwhelm you because it's not worth it
0: when we come right back to balance
1: right back to balance (laughs) it was lovely to have a chat with you and really good luck with with all of your future endeavors it sounds like you have exciting stuff ahead
0: oh thank you so much margarita it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And that was 20 to 1. For more insights from this episode and others, make sure to subscribe to the monthly newsletter at 20to1.com. And if you like this podcast, make sure to rate it on Spotify. With that, there's nothing left to do than to say thank you, goodbye, and see you soon.